Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh, you can walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them all. What you doing down here, you shawnee man? You're very welcome to Second Captain's Football at the Irish Times. We've got a, an extremely happy Ken Early here. I'm pleased to report. Yeah? You are happy, Ken. I'll tell you why you're happy. Yeah, <laughs> I will tell you why you're, <laughs> Let me know. why you're feeling how you're feeling. Two reasons. Yes. First of all, we're talking to Diego Torres today, the author of a new book on Jose Mourinho. Yes. And secondly, we're also talking about your favourite move in football. By move, I mean, say the Zidane pirouette would have been your favourite move around 98, 99. Yeah, yeah. It's now the Gareth Bale wide arcing run. Off the pitch and, and ex- back on again. Oh, an example of which he produced last night. If people haven't seen this, get online and have a look at Gareth Bale's goal from last night. Yeah. Ridiculous. Amazing. And this is the 85th minute of the cup final, uh, one all against Barcelona. He actually scored a goal that was disallowed uh, a little earlier. Uh, and obviously, with Ronaldo not being on the field, Ronaldo's there. <laughs> I don't know what. I don't, I don't know where Cristiano Ronaldo gets his ideas for his outfits. It's, they're completely ridiculous. He's there. I mean, I don't know what's wrong with just wearing a suit. You know, if you're going to be part of the well, club he delegation. He wears these um, incredibly, like, skin-tight waistcoats and uh, and a baseball cap. I'm thinking, Ronaldo, why are you doing this? But, you know, we, it was great to see Ronaldo. Old, old man early here. In his cardigan. He has got his old man cardigan here today <laughs> while talking about the youth of uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Oh, on, Ronaldo. But, uh, you know, Ronaldo was there and he's now Real Madrid's most passionate supporter as his injury keeps him out of more and more games. It's the only time that Cristiano Ronaldo is truly happy for his teammates to score goals is when he is not on the pitch. Yeah, and he really, he was going absolutely mad yeah. in Bale. But this goal by Bale, I mean, a ball, Barcelona were attacking uh, and then the ball kind of broke out the left side of Madrid's defence and someone played it up the line towards Bale who had Mark Bartra coming to try and shut off his run up the up the line. Uh, and Bale just knocked it past him into the space, and Bartra kind of came across thinking, "I'm just going to, I'm just going to obstruct him basically and take him out of here." But Bale just essentially dodged to the left and around in a wide curving arc, which took him three or four meters off the pitch, yeah. and ran on this outside line, completely destroyed Bartra for base, got into the box, and ended up knocking it between the goalkeeper's legs. Pinto, in fairness, the goalkeeper not very good. But what was what amazed me about it was that the defender knew 
to say he knew what was coming, I think he knew when the by the time the ball was even getting to Garbale, he knew exactly what Garbale was about to do. Yeah, and that's you would think in football that's half the battle if you're a defender. You know what the person does, and you adjust accordingly, and you, you set your own plan in motion. And his plan was to ignore the ball entirely. Yeah. The ball didn't exist for uh, sorry, I keep forgetting Mark his name. Bartra. For Mark Bartra at that point, the only thing that mattered was stopping Gareth Bale's run. Mm. So he went out and tried to body check him, mm. push him another couple of uh, feet out with that move, and still couldn't cut off the, the run to the ball. It was un- unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, there are not many players. There's, there are, I mean, who who else can do that kind of thing? I'm thinking in, in terms of that world exact football. move, but, you mean? Well, I've seen Bale does it so often. It's I've never seen anyone do it, do it as like part of his, it's yeah. obviously part of his kind of standard repertoire. Would you be a bigger fan of that? Or, well, the Z- Z- I'm trying to think of the the great moves, trick moves. Zidane's pirouette was made. Um, Danielson's the Danielson stepovers, step <laughs> which never really led to much, unfortunately. For all the never music. once really saw them lead to anything. Um, the the Blanco bounce, the what? Uh, was it Quotomoc Blanco? Is that is that? I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. Mexican the, guy. Yeah, stubbly Mexican. What was his move? Why can't I don't remember? The, he did it in the '98 World Cup. I mean, he. I don't know how often he did it. Because it was a terrible move. Uh, but it, I think it wasn't it Mexico against South Korea or someone. Mm. And um, Blanco, essentially, he's in the tights, but, you know, cut off by a defender, um, just grabbed the ball between his feet and jumped up with it as though it was a low, low ball <laughs> over the defender's yeah. challenge and away. Uh, I mean, awful. <laughs> a move so bad that this was the first time anyone had attempted it in the World Cup. Uh, and I think the last, it never really caught on. But, you know, the Blanco bounce, there it is. I might have a look at that, Ken, once we finish doing this show. Mm. Uh, we're going to be talking also about a book by Scott Murray, is the co-author of the uh, title of it is Gaza Misses the Final, Epic World Cup Clashes Minute by Minute as They Really Happened. This is a way of, of consuming football in particular, and it's other sports now as well, but football was kind of, the, the, and the Guardian in particular led the way on this. Mm. Um, online consumption, uh, minute by minute reports, which... I don't know. I don't know if they knew it would take off in the way that it does, but I'm sure a lot of people listening, if they're downloading this kind of show, probably follow these minute by minute reports. And yeah. the, uh, he's gone back on old World Cup matches and essentially reported them in that style, yeah. as though they're being watched for the first time, which sounds like a pretty interesting idea. Yeah, it's good. And Rob uh, Smythe and Scott Murray are both very good writers, so um, yeah, it's, it's going to be good. So we'll talk to Scott a bit later on. Time now for Kennedy's report on sport. Um, so I guess we should start with Manchester City. Oh dear, oh dear. Um, you know, you to to be winning against Sunderland after almost the first few kicks of the game, and then to not beat them—that's really not good. Uh, Manuel Pellegrini blames mental tiredness. Try blaming Joe Hart. I mean, I don't know why. Why would Joe Hart be mentally tired? You know, he's like all he does is stand in his penalty area, um, sort of puff his chest out. Uh, and you know, throw his shoulders back, and generally that assume a lot of, good posture. That takes a lot of effort. I think that it's, my, it's a theory I have on Joe Harkin. Mm. He spends a lot of his time developing the goalkeeping aura. Yeah, he looks the part, and he thinks about how he should look the part. Yeah, which is which is legitimate. You it know is legitimate. I mean? it actually, I it is important. I mean, a bit flippant here. Yeah. <laughs> it really is, and he does he does have that, and that's great. But often he does switch off. He's thinking more about uh, you know whether about about his posture and how straight his back is. As uh, the ball is flying by him. Yeah, and, and he's completely forgotten where his near post is. And and sort of the near post turns out to be a lot further away from him than he thought. And this is last night. Um, Connor Wickham scored what looked like it was going to be the winning goal for Sunderland just into this vast, unguarded space to the left of Joe Hart between him and his supposedly near post. I mean, it's just... This is the re- I mean, we, we were talking about Joe Hart against Liverpool. I think it was because Vincent Company had such a bad game. I think Joe Hart's part in that goal, the first goal particularly, was, was overlooked. What yeah, was he doing? There's no need for him to come off his line. There's a defender between the striker and the goal. Let the defender let do the defender his job. Defend and, uh, company would have fallen for the dummy anyway, but at least you've got a goalkeeper mm. in behind him who might be able to make the save. Yeah. Pellegrini, I think we're more mentally tired than physically tired. Mentally, it was very difficult to play this game after Liverpool. At the moment, it's more mental than physical. When it no longer depends on what you can do, it's very frustrating, but we must finish the season the way we have done. Practically the whole season, we must try to win our last five games. I don't understand because the Manchester City that we saw in the Liverpool match, they were actually—I mean—that was formidable, really. What they did, that okay, they ended up losing the game, but definitely in the second half, 
they, the, you couldn't make an argument they should have won that game. Yeah, but his argument is even that, from two 0 down. His argument is that that took a lot out of them. That the fact that they didn't, I, I think, just reading between the lines, he feels maybe if they'd gotten away with the draw at Liverpool, yeah. they'd still have a pep in their step now. But uh, I don't know. I think, I think you have to go and yeah. win those games. I mean, they're they're teams. they're in a situation now where they've let Liverpool. Liverpool can drop points in one of their games and still win the league as long as they don't lose to Chelsea because Chelsea now are also in the position where if they win all their games, they're going to win the league. Yeah. So um, it does look as though it's going to be between those two. Everton also a really disappointing uh, result. Uh, Roberto Martinez, uh, this was Everton losing 3-2 to, to Crystal Palace. Um uh, Martinez says he's still confident getting Champions League essentially because he thinks Arsenal. He thinks Arsenal are going to drop points. Um, I don't know though. I mean, the Palace are, are Liverpool's second last game. Uh, does Tony Pulis do friendlies? I mean, I was looking at a uh, Raphael Honigstein was writing about Bayern Munich. Um, you know, Bayern Munich lost like uh, to I think Augsburg, and then they lost three 0 to Borussia Dortmund in the league. Just was it the weekend? I guess it was three 0 and um, you know everyone was like, "Well, oh, this is." You know, Bayern's worst run of form for nearly three years. Um, what's going on? You know, the wheels have come off. And uh, Honigstein's analysis was Pep Guardiola doesn't do friendlies. So essentially, with the league already won, there's, you know, the, really? there's nothing at stake in the game that they weren't able to get to the kind of competitive level they needed. Now, I wonder, is Tony Pulis any different? Because Crystal Palace are safe now, really, from relegation. Are they totally safe, though? Well, I mean, uh, I actually don't have the league table. In I'll front get the of league me. table. You, you, you make your point, Ken. Um, I'll do the research. Whether he will be able to, whether he'll be able to, to rouse his players to that frenzy of um, competitive aggression that we've seen in some of Crystal Palace's recent games, with nothing really at stake, uh, I'm not so sure. Although there might be more at stake than uh, Palace had been expecting, because this strange situation has developed where Cardiff are claiming that yeah. their 3-0 defeat to Palace uh, in April should be struck and, struck and, stricken from the record. Uh, they're saying this, the match shouldn't count. They lost 3-0 to Palace and they're yeah, saying Palace it shouldn't count. Palace are miles clear. Sorry, yeah, they are on 40 points and Fulham, yeah. who are third and bottom, are, are on 30 points. Yeah, so there's you know, very little chance of Fulham getting to getting And to a lot of other teams in between those two, those two as well. Um, but they, they, they might end up having three points less if Cardiff's um, if if Cardiff's uh, complaint is upheld, centres around what? Well, this is this is quite a weird one, actually. Essentially, that um, Ian Moody, who is the sporting director of Crystal Palace, Cardiff say that this guy Ian Moody was trying to find out their lineup before the game. He was trying to find out their team. Um, so basically, Cardiff claimed Pudis was aware. This is. The Tony Pulis, the manager, was aware that Moody, his sporting director, was attempting to obtain confidential information about the Bluebird starting lineup. Um, Pulis has declined to comment when the BBC uh, contacted him to right. ask about this. But essentially, it's it's a really weird one. Um, okay, Cardiff insists that Moody, a former director of recruitment at Cardiff, phoned a former colleague at the uh, Welsh side, the club's performance analyst, Enda Barron, on the 3rd of April, two days before the match. It's led she called to ask Barron if he could help him obtain the team for the match against Palace. Barron, uh, although Barron told Cardiff he was unable to provide Moody with the information, he has since left the club. So, um, essentially that Moody kept... Uh, Barron said, I can't do it. Moody kept trying to find it from someone else. Um, so, uh, apparently Moody then found out... <laughs> And okay, this is where it gets really weird. Um, a text message was sent straight from Gunnarsson, Aaron Gunnarsson, the Cardiff player. Their lineup is four four two: Marshall, KTC, Cocker, Turner, Taylor, blah blah blah. The team, right? It turns out to be the right team. Um, but uh, so so that that would suggest Aaron Gunnarsson was the guy who told Ian Moody the the team. Um, but apparently, uh, Ian Moody, when he got this information from whoever it was, Gunnarsson's denying that he sent it put it into a text message and sent it to the Bolton manager, Dougie Friedman. What? Yes. He sent it to the Dougie Friedman, the Bolton manager. He's got nothing to do with anything. He he sent a text to the wrong person. By accident? Yeah. So Dougie Friedman gets this text uh, from Ian Moody. We've all done it, Ken. Claiming that he's been told the team from Gunnarsson 
uh, and, he, and here's the Cardiff team, thinks to himself, this is a bit weird. Thinks to himself, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer would be interested to know about this because, um, and he's a good friend of mine because we, we run the coaching courses together. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give Ollie Gunnar a call and just tell him that Ian Moody seems to be sending texts around to pretty much everyone about, about what Cardiff's team is going to be. So he, he got onto Solskjaer and uh, essentially Solskjaer confronted Pulis about it. He said, I'm disgusted your head of recruitment is texting one of my players to get our team. Pulis allegedly responded, ooh, I know. I didn't ask for it. So, essentially, uh, Cardiff are claiming that this... Uh, Solskjaer got on to Pulis. Pulis. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's an interesting <clears throat> way to go about it, actually. Solskjaer uh, put, 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 put on the record. way, I guess, to, to say, hang on. Yeah. You, this this is, is, let's confront this. What are, you, what are your boys doing? Uh, Cardiff claim it amounts to a serious breach of the spirit of the Premier League Chairman's Charter, which requires clubs behave with utmost good faith and honesty to each other. They're going to say Palace have failed to maintain confidence as deliberately acted to breach Premier League and FA rules, blah, blah, blah. Uh, three FA rules, B15, B16, B17. I don't know. I mean, I haven't ever... I can't remember a team or a game being cancelled out for a reason like this before. In a sense, hmm, I don't know. Is it, is I don't know. I don't, I don't see... Well, I, I don't know the legalities of it. It would surprise me if you could... I would be amazed if that there was any grounds for cancelling the results yeah I'm sure there could be grounds for it there could be a punishment it could be against a rule but you're not fielding ineligible players for example and even if you do that you don't always have the result annulled you tend to get some sort of punishment I really don't understand how the the precise Cardiff team is that valuable piece of information anyway I mean you know pretty much what the team it's going to be that is interesting they're they're essentially playing the same way in, in every game um they, you know, you know it's going to be a selection of players from the Cardiff squad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, if Luis Suarez turns up in the Cardiff team, that's maybe you'd want to know about that in advance. But I, I don't understand uh, what the big deal is over. But I suppose mm. Cardiff, will, in the position they're in, will try anything. Uh, you say that they m- might take the foot off the gas now, Crystal Palace. Uh, presumably, they don't have that result annulled and, mm. uh, and, and struggle. But they do have Liverpool still to play. This is one of the games, and we haven't um, chatted since uh, Man City last night. Mm. Liverpool now very much in the driving seat as long as they can take care of Chelsea. But that Crystal Palace game, apparently a couple of things on that. I was reading that Liverpool have quite a bad record there, bizarrely. At Palace, yeah. And also also against Tony Pulis. Tony Pulis has, is a Liverpool slayer as a, uh, as a Stoke manager. They had a couple of big results against him. Yeah. Uh, so, I think, uh, could I be, think that could be a weird game for this, but it probably looks a lot easier now that Palace are safe than it would have if they were. It's the classic thing. You want to be playing, you really do want to be playing teams who are 11th. Yeah, and their and last game is their last game against Newcastle. Newcastle, at home. That's, are, a, that's a dream. Yeah, it's it's the perfect game. I think uh, at the end, um, Newcastle has just been so spineless, uh, and there's nothing for them to play for. But uh, first of all, they've got to get there. I mean, the Pulis's Stoke was certainly successful against Liverpool. I mean, they they drew with them in 2009. I, I draw, which in a, in a way wasn't it was just after Benitez had done his big press conference the facts. about Alex Ferguson. Yeah. And then they went and drew nil nil with Stoke, and I was like, oh, didn't really have the, you know, it, it's it's hard to say whether one had any, uh, whether the press conference had anything to do with the result, but clearly, it would have been a lot better for Rafael Benitez if they'd won that match. I think it's pretty clear that footballers do. Uh, this is the whole Jose Mourinho thing. The footballers do notice what's being said in the media. It is part, of, and whether the manager wants to involve the players in it, I would doubt that Benitez was the kind of manager who would bring all his players in and say, listen, I'm going to say this, no. which Mourinho does. Mourinho says, I'm going to say something to the press. Mm. And that's that's the message for them. And then, so they, they know how to filter it. If you're watching Benitez doing that facts, yeah. listening at all these facts, and kind of, did he get the specs on, reading out his list, I'd say, <laughs> I'm sure the Liverpool players are like, the rest was going, what's going uh, on? This no, is weird. On here. Uh, you want to talk about yeah. Luis Suarez before we... Oh, just that he's telling everyone to calm down. He's not listening to TV and radio. It's pretty, pretty dull, really. Apparently people keep coming up to him in like Costco. And saying, you know, do you think we're going to win the league, Louis? And he says, uh, he tells them, uh, be calm, do not worry. Uh, it's better not to read the newspapers, watch the television, or listen to the radio. Right, yeah. It's, a, well, it's, it's an interesting way of approaching it because uh, we had Ruby Walsh on the TV show last night. He was yeah. a really interesting character, very steely character. Yeah. And did not take kindly to losing the quiz to, in controversial circumstances to Murph. Yeah, but yeah. Aside from that, in reading his book ahead of chatting to him, one thing that he, an interesting one that we didn't get to in the chat with him was that he says he finds it difficult sometimes interacting with, with the public in the sense of 
particularly with racing, such a, the only question anyone's ever asking you is, if you got a tip, you know? Mm. Cheltenham's going up, what's your tip? And he yeah. says, I don't really want to kind of get into it too much. And also, he, he said he was told when he was very young, about 17, you're going to be asked this question a lot, just give them a horse. Just give the people a horse. It doesn't matter. They're not going to blame you if it loses, and if it wins, you look great, it's fine. So he has that in his head but then when it comes to it he doesn't want to give them a loser mm-hmm. and maybe he doesn't want to reveal too much about the horses he's on I don't know so he ends up kind of not not answering them yeah. and he, he feels that sometimes he comes across as he, he might feel that they think he's a bit aloof or a bit arrogant for not giving them the tip yeah so people so don't, this is, yeah, if so, you see a jockey don't go up and ask him um, for well, my point tip. is this is obviously a thing that all sportsmen have and Luis Suarez and I'm sure Stephen Jarrett if he, if he goes to Costco is getting the same question yeah. time and time again and Probably good just to have an answer. Just just a, a stock answer. Put it out there. Jared, get yeah. the conversation over. People say, what a nice guy. He gave me an answer. Do you think Stephen Gerrard goes out much in public these days? I mean... He would be just mobbed, wouldn't he? You, you would imagine, yeah. I don't know. Maybe he has to, um, you know, jealously guard his privacy That's in a time like this. the end of Kennedy's report on sport. Dryers is a metaphor for the current of hot air generated by a furious blast of temper. The hair dryer with which uh, Alex Ferguson was famously associated. He threw a hair dryer, I think, at David Beckham. I was thought that he threw a hair dryer at David Beckham. Uh, in the, is that right? No, 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 no. Small bit of housekeeping to take care of right now. People love a bit of housekeeping. Yeah. Radio show. Yeah. <laughs> Our Monday programs next week will be on Tuesday. That's basically it. I mean, that's all I need to tell you. It's not. It's not too. It's not too complex. I don't even know why I'm still rabbiting on about a camp because it's Bank Holiday Monday. Yeah, it's Easter Monday. We're all going to enjoy our Easter. We'll think about. We'll watch a lot of sport over the long weekend. And yeah. we'll think of intelligent ways to talk about it on Tuesday. That's the. Uh, that's, we'll the, the that's the plan. Tuesday. Tuesday. It's going to be. I'm delighted to be joined now by Diego Torres, author of the special one, "The Dark Side of Jose Mourinho," which is a book. Diego, we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of uh, couple of days here. It's about his time at Real Madrid. You were covering the club, and you wrote a lot about him at the time. This book is incredible in that it's very critical of Jose Mourinho. Um, was it difficult to write it? Did you ever worry about the reaction that you might get to being so critical of maybe the most famous manager in the world? Well, uh, it's it's not comfortable to be critical with uh, with uh, the, the establishment. When you, you talk about Mourinho, you talk about the, the, the establishment. He always works for the most powerful clubs uh, in the industry and this is not uh, uh, they, they, they have a lot of, of, of influence a lot of uh, uh, means to to put pressure on 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 everybody on players on journalists and and it's not easy to to write about them the central um, insight of the book maybe the image of the book is of Jose Mourinho, a man who appears to be <laughs> the most confident person that you could come across, but he actually seems almost, it's more that really he's in terror of losing, uh, as opposed to essentially that he's not quite as confident as we all would have thought he was. Well, it's, it's not, uh, Mourinho is, is, is a complex, uh, has a complex personality. He 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 pretends he he is in charge and uh, he is uh, he he is self uh, assured of of everything he he controls everything but he he is insecure uh, and he is afraid of of of, of failure and uh, I think. In my opinion, he, he sometimes his fear of losing is such that he loses control of the situation. Uh, he doesn't look uh, football uh, as, a, as, as a mere game. He's not a, just a game for him. He's he's much more serious. Uh, and um, he, he he he's so defensive in his in his tactical uh, his tactical view of, of of the game is so conservative and so defensive 
because uh, of this fear of, of losing. That's why he's always choosing the same uh, kind of, of player, which is athletical, strong, uh, powerful, physically, uh, very, uh, very, um, very, very strong. Uh, because he 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 doesn't feel secure of of his means to to beat uh, the the opposition um, with with another uh, with a more risky um, plan. Uh, that's why he's he's always on the defensive. This seems to have been one of the reasons why the Real Madrid players or some of the Real Madrid players almost immediately didn't like Mourinho. Uh, when he when he arrived at Madrid, you get a feeling some of the players immediately thought, I'm not, I'm not sure if this is the right man, because they felt that they were better players, they felt that they could play a kind of big team football, um, and Mourinho wanted them to play like a small team, and this was the friction that was there right from the very beginning. Do you think, though, that those Real Madrid players were correct? Do you think that they were as good as they thought they were? Maybe Jose Mourinho was correct when he uh, said, okay, I look at my players and I don't think my team is as good as Barcelona. Well, um, I, I think uh, I think Mourinho could have done more um, with the players he, he has because uh, he has more talent than, than the talent he used. For example, uh, you have Kaká, the, the the former Milan um, player who Mourinho never never uses him. And I think you you have you have a team to match Barcelona. Probably um, Barcelona was more de- developed with the time. They 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 work for for a longer time and they 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 drill a bit more so they have an advantage. But uh, the squad he Mourinho has in in Madrid was quite strong. I think they they could beat Barcelona um, if if they if they were more uh, confident. Uh, and with another means, with an, with another tactical plan, they could have beat Barcelona uh, more easily than they've done. This led to this, um, comf- I suppose, this dichotomy between what he believed and what the players believed led to a lot of confrontation, which is outlined in vivid detail in your book, Diego. Was this confrontation... And the arguments and the fights that happened between Mourinho and his players, were they orchestrated and deliberate and well thought out by Mourinho? Or were they actually, was it a case that he couldn't help himself? He just lost his temper on occasions. Well, some some of the confrontation was prepared, was uh, part of, the, of, of Mourinho... Uh, way of of managing things he creates uh, the conflict to to solve uh, the problems and to uh, to inspire his players with with uh, with a will to to win and with a with a stamina to 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 play the the game uh, so he Mourinho Mourinho has been Extraordinary, uh, successful in in doing this, but uh, probably in some uh, in some uh, moments he 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 felt uh, almost unbeatable. He felt this uh, this way of of, of uh, approaching the, the the managerial work was. Uh, um, Will never fail, and uh, he he loses. Finally, he he finished losing control of, of the of the situation because his uh, I, think, uh, I think his ego uh, mm, 
confuses uh, Mourinho. He's, he, he turned to be uh, an egomaniac, and uh, this uh, was so confusing for, for him. And uh, well, first, in, in Chelsea and in Inter Milan, he has, uh, his, his method has been uh, more, much, much more um, balanced than it was in Madrid because his personality changed. Hmm. I think he, with, with the time, he felt, uh, he felt he will win, uh, every, um, he, he will, he will always win. He was undisputable, the, the, the best coach in the world and his met method will never fail and he will control almost every situation. Um, but, uh, the fact is that reality, uh, was, wasn't as he thought it would be in, in Spain. And, and the cultural reasons are a, a very important, uh, part of this. The, 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 the personality of the Spanish player is, is much more different than, than the, the personality of the Italian or the English player. That's, that's very interesting, Diego. Maybe you could explain that to us, because, um, you know, I get the impression when Mourinho is in England, everybody thinks he's funny. Everybody laughs at his jokes. Everybody thinks, uh, you know, Mourinho has a positive kind of impression of him, but that did not seem to be the impression at all in Spain. What, what were the cultural reasons for that? Uh, I, I think here in, in Spain we take... Uh, we, we we will never love, we, you know. I, um, let me explain it. Um, we take it uh, we take it so seriously that we couldn't we couldn't laugh uh, with with Mourinho. It, it wasn't funny at all. Uh, I think uh, in in Britain they have a they you have a sense of uh, of uh, the drama of of football as a as a as a kind of theater in which the the every everybody plays a role and Mourinho plays a a, a funny role uh, um he he was the joker but uh, he, he was a kind of showman but here in in Spain um the the the, the supporters the the media couldn't see Mourinho as uh, as a mere uh, joker, as 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 a showman, he, they 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 saw him as a as a kind of oppressive uh, authority, as um, as an evil, uh, wicked uh, person uh, who uses his his uh, authority to to. Um, to to put pressure on, on players and and to and not not uh, let them enjoy the the game here in Spain is is very important to for the players I mean they 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 leave their the profession uh, as a joyous thing they 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 play football to enjoy and in Italy and in Britain is slightly different. Yeah, there a really interesting strand to the story here, um, Diego. Is the relationship between Jose Mourinho and his agent George Mendes? Uh, there's a moment in the book where you say the players began to wonder if Mendes actually worked in the building, you know, the office at the the training ground, because he was there so much. And it seemed as though Mourinho um, really wanted to fill the team with George Mendes players. I wondered why he would do that. Is it simply a question of? He wants to help his agent to make money, or is it that he wants to fill the team with loyal players, even if they're not the best players? Well, in the NBA, for example, in in, in basketball, is much more regulated. This this kind of of situations are forbidden because of of the, the potential conflict of interest between the manager and his agent, but. In football, uh, there's a, there's there's much much more freedom of of action, and you have to 
be confident uh, about the, what the manager does with with his with his agent. And here in in Madrid, uh, Mourinho brought um, six uh, players of uh, George Mendes, and uh, <clears throat> the rest of the of the squad was was afraid of of being uh, um, uh, was afraid of of the consequences of uh, of Mendes bringing more. Uh, players to the team and receiving the 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 support the special support and, and affection of of Mourinho because Mourinho uh, didn't treat everybody the same uh, he was much more supportive with Mendes players with the, the rest of, of of the players and this is this uh, this behavior uh, has Terrible consequences for for the life inside the, the dressing room, inside the, the team. This feeling of uh, injustice, um, and I think the freedom Mourinho has here to to act uh, with his agent was unique in in his career. Uh, neither in Inter Milan and or nor in, in in Chelsea has such freedom to. To work with with his agent as he he did here in Diego, uh, one of the I guess fascinating aspects to this. You did you open the book with the story of Jose Mourinho's reaction to not being passed over for the Manchester United job? Now he says now that he always was going to Chelsea and that the Manchester United job wasn't an issue for him. I, I guess he would have to say that, seeing as he's now employed by Chelsea. But uh, as far as your understanding of it is, and reading the translation of the book, Mourinho, is it right to say that he broke down when he found out he wasn't going to be the Man United manager? Yeah, he, the, the, the people that works with him, the, the, the people of uh, George, this company, uh, Jesse Fute, uh, told me that he... He, he fell desperate when he when he knew uh, he wasn't the, the chosen one. He always wanted to 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 manage Manchester United. Um, that was his his dream, he, his ambition. And uh, although he, he he has already signed a contract um, with Chelsea. Um, George Mendes uh, and his uh, and his uh, lawyers think that they they were capable of broking this contract with Manchester United in case Alex Ferguson called him. So they they always expected uh, this possibility. They they were planning uh, the, the, this possibility since a long time. Through uh, a strong relationship with uh, with Alex Ferguson, George Mendes uh, and Mourinho, both of them uh, felt they were friends uh, with uh, with Alex Ferguson. So it was a huge disappointment disappointment for for them uh, to know that uh, they weren't the Josie wasn't the, the chosen one. Mm. The uh, we we spoke recently to Simon Cooper, who who said something interesting in passing about Jose Mourinho. He broke Mourinho's career into two spells, from two thousand and two to two thousand and ten, when he was very successful, and his career since two thousand and ten, when he hasn't been so successful. It was the first time I'd heard someone do that before to suggest maybe now we're in a different phase of Mourinho. Do you, Diego, expect him? to continue to be successful or to the man that you saw uh, at, at Real Madrid for three seasons? Do you think maybe something's changed in him and, and we're never going to see Mourinho as this, um, you know, a guy who, who wins a trophy every season? That's not going to be the case anymore. Well, I think with 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 managers always happens the, the same. With the time, they lose credibility. They, the, the innocence... Uh, uh, when they when they lose their innocence, when they 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 start 
to 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 win trophies uh, and when they start to to understand their players and when when they get old um they they lose uh this capability of um of uh, convincing others to do things uh, i don't know why but this is a fact most of the of, of the managers uh, are more successful when they are young i don't know why why that happens but uh, with mourinho it's uh, process is is going on and he he's not uh, um, the players doesn't perceive him as they used to, as a guy who who transmits the players uh, their feelings and their emotions as as they used to, as he used to. He he hasn't uh, now no, he's not so much efficient uh, in doing that as as he used to be. And I think this is for. Uh, this is because he he has changed his uh, his character has changed he he probably um, he's he's not the, the same kind of of person he's not the same kind of of manager um, i don't i don't know why right? but exactly but uh, um, he He's more arrogant now than than he used to be. He he feels more um, uh, he he feels he he owns the, the the truth. He feels he never failed. He it's more difficult for him to to listen to listen to to the people around him. He he's more outside reality than he used to be um, and that's why I think he, he hasn't the credibility uh, within his players uh, the credibility he used to have okay. between his players Well the book is called The Special One The Dark Side of Jose Mourinho so people can get more of an insight into what he was like at Real Madrid and maybe we can learn a bit more from that about why he, uh, where he is at right now. But in the meantime, Diego Torres, uh, listen, it was great to talk to you and congratulations on the book. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Really interesting stuff there. It was yeah. great to chat to Diego about that and it's brilliant that the book has been uh, published in, in English now. Um, just what we were talking about at the end there, Jose Mourinho and just the difference in him now compared to, say, 10 years ago, he doesn't, and I don't know how the Chelsea players are reacting to him. I mean, the Chelsea players who were there are also the the the. the, the it's also that gap. But a manager, this Alex Ferguson's a great thing. Alex Ferguson got older, yeah. was not as in tune with what a twenty year old thinks as he would have been when he was thirty or in his early thirties, starting his management career. But he found a way, and that's, I think a lot of people he found a way to connect with these guys. I mean, Alex Ferguson connecting with Cristiano Ronaldo is kind of bizarre yeah. when you think about it. And this is something that Mourinho, if he does want to have longevity, yeah. is going to have to get right. And judging by what we're talking about there it's actually a guy a manager aging not particularly gracefully I suppose I mean if you have been as successful as Jose Mourinho it is the most human thing to start to believe that you're at least half a god you know that's an entirely human way to react to incredible success to think well the reason I'm successful is that I am actually a genius I'm a genius it's so obvious look at me you know, I look amazing, I sound amazing, people just want to hear what I say, I win the European Cup every so often. I'm a genius! And that's what he's thinking. But at Real Madrid, I get the impression what happened here was that he arrived, I remember when he arrived at Chelsea, he had just won the European Cup. Um, and those players, when he arrived, they were nothing. You know, Lampard, Terry, uh, Drogba, none of them have won anything, mm-hmm. really. Um, they were kind of young raw players who were waiting for they were Jose Mourinho came along at the perfect waiting time for God. someone to believe in you know and they honestly yeah he, he was able to come in and sort of puff himself up and uh, I mean that's when he was calling himself the special one or whatever and he, he was just the perfect manager for them at that time because they all believed in they just believed they had treated him with like dog like devotion you know these Chelsea players it was incredible I mean you hear Drogba talking about him 
years later and you think, Mourinho was amazing. I'm talking about his ability to, you know, predict things in matches. Now, Jesse Mourinho can't do that, right? Nobody can actually tell the future. It's been, certainly in a football match, it's a random sequence of events. Yeah. You can't really say. But Drogba, you know, honestly believed the man was like a prophet. He, he had invested him with his magical powers. Um, but when Mourinho went to Real Madrid, it was a little bit different. Sure, again, again he arrived um, after winning the Champions League. But he arrived to a squad that had just won the World Cup. You know, where some of them, the main antagonists against him, Ramos and Casillas, have literally just won the World Cup. And they didn't need, you know, when they, Mourinho's coming in, they're kind of like, well, you know, we're Real Madrid. Uh, what, what is it? What so is it's, that not, you're it's, it's not what I'm talking about, or Diego was talking about there about the, the that he's aging. That it's it's just that he's getting older and maybe therefore not having the same effect. Well, as, I suppose the, I way mean, I, the way I'm phrasing that is a bit ageist, actually. But I think that Real Madrid and Jose Mourinho brought out the worst in each other. They really, it was just a, a really horrible match of of managerial style and the, the institutional nature of He the needed club. Real Madrid to have had a few bad years and maybe Spain to have had a few bad years going. Yeah, in, absolutely. You, you Inter know, Milan was a prime example of that. I mean, in fairness, Real Madrid were having, were having some bad times in the league. But the problem was that Mourinho essentially said to the player, or didn't say to the players as such, but Mourinho saying, OK, we're going to play quite defensive, counter-attacking style. Ronaldo, was, we're, we're going to be set up to try and draw teams out and get Ronaldo in behind. And the Real Madrid players are thinking, well, hang on, we're better players than that. We want to play an ambitious, attacking way. And Mourinho's looking at them going, you can't. You think you can beat Barcelona playing the same way as them? You can't, forget it. You're never going to. But it, the really interesting thing about this book is how Mourinho actually, he, he told the players, okay, you're going to be the bad guys of this story. We're the, we're the bad guys. And what we're going to do is embrace that. Embrace our evil... Uh, the, the evil way that we're being seen by everybody. We're going to do that. Let's go out there and kick them off the field. There's a moment in it where they lose at home to Barcelona yeah. in the semi-final of the Champions League, 2-0. Remember, it was 2011. Messi scored... Uh, this is Mourinho's first season there. Messi scored two goals at the Bernabeu. And Mourinho comes into the players and he's like, well, really balls that one up. And he, sent, and he says to them, OK, we have, we have three possibilities. Two impossible and one possible. The impossible possibilities are that we get another thrashing when we go to Barcelona in the second leg, that we get thrashed. Um, the second impossible possibility is that we win. And the possible possibility is that we lose narrowly, narrowly enough to blame the result on the referee. That's what we're going out there to do. And the players are looking at each other going, is he serious? You know, it's... You know, Casillas, who is obviously one of the major... <laughs> Casillas is just, oh, he's, you know, shaking with, you know, white with, with rage, you know, as his, as his, his pride in Real Madrid is being dragged through the mud. What do you mean? We're going to Barcelona to lose narrowly and, and explicitly to blame the referee? This is no way to... This is not how Real Madrid behave. And, you know, all these kinds of things. I mean, what, what's interesting as well is just to, is to see how Mourinho's... His little lapses of taste and judgment, like... Um, boasting to the players about how much money George Mendes made. Oh, this guy's got so much money. All right, Ken, we're going to have to leave that book there for the time being. We do have to move on to uh, another book called Gaza Misses the Final Epic World Cup Clashes Minute by Minute as they really happen. Rob Smythe and Scott Murray have put this together. Uh, Scott Murray joins us now. And the idea here is that this all comes from the minute by minute reports that The Guardian really started up many years ago and have completely exploded. And all, all different sports follow this kind of model now. And what you've done here is gone back through great matches in history and report on them as though they're happening in this minute by minute style. Can you talk to us about how did you, did you have to convince yourself that you don't know what's going to happen in these huge games in order to write about it in this way? Um, well, yeah, th- I think kind of, I mean, the 1974 final, for example, the narrative of that, um, that's pretty much established through the years is that Holland were hard done by West Germany, didn't really deserve to, to, to win the game. But in fact, if you go into it um, sort of fresh and just try and, and, and sort of put that to one side, it's quite interesting how things unfold. I mean, West Germany were, for the majority of that match, the better side until Holland sort of turned it on in the last 20 minutes when they battered, uh, you know, trying to get the equaliser. But West Germany should have had a penalty kick. They had a good goal disallowed for offside. Uh yeah, it's it, it's interesting how the the sort of received wisdoms are quite often not quite um, not quite true. 
How did you decide which matches to cover? I mean, for instance, there's only a short vignette from the 2002 World Cup, but there's two full matches from 2006. So how did you decide which was worthy of, of coverage? Well, I mean, that's just an inexact science. The 2002 World Cup, uh, I, I mean, obviously <laughs> was, was very interesting from an Irish perspective, but actually on the pitch, um, there wasn't a great deal, we thought, that sort of went on anywhere, really. It was a fairly poor quality World Cup. Whereas the 1970 World Cup, there's four games from there. The 1966 World Cup, there's a couple of games from that one. Um, 82 and 86. I mean, it's just one of these things I think the World Cup is sort of generally recognised. It's, it's kind of got a wee bit worse and less interesting. There's been less... Uh, there's been there have been fewer matches that have got this sort of seismic uh, quality. Uh, certainly in the last sort of three or four stagings of it, maybe since '94, really. Well, that was uh, what that was actually the main thing we wanted to talk to you about because it does seem that way to me um, that the World Cup isn't as good as it used to be, which may just be may just be a reflection of the fact that I'm getting old and things don't don't <laughs> tend, don't match up to. You know how good they were when you were ten or eleven, watching these things on TV. But you know, having sat through a lot of old World Cup matches stretching back, you know, more than fifty years, was it really better in the old days? <laughs> I guess it was. Uh, I mean, what, one of the things about the older World Cups is just by dint of having fewer teams in each tournament. Each World Cup has a kind of uh, different flavour because, say, for example, the 1970 World Cup, Argentina wasn't in that World Cup. Um, the 82 and 86 World Cups, Holland wasn't there. And you had that sort of... It, everything had a slightly different flavour where now it's a little bit more little bit more homogenised, I think. But also things were just happening for the first time. And I think, you know, football... It's just one of those things, I guess. Football's now, well, it's 150 years plus is, a, is this sort of going concern. that Like, a lot of things have been sussed out. So something like the Battle of Santiago in 1962, which is just this amazing. I mean, we've all seen the highlights, the great left hook, all that sort of thing. But, I mean, that's just a relentless slugfest. Like, every single minute it could, like, sort of kick off into... But I mean, just just one of the average minutes in the Battle of Santiago. If you took that now, would end up would break Twitter. If it, it would just be this, you know, amazing controversy. Um, but I think that was sort of allowed to happen. I mean, it was obviously still a fairly unique uh, incident then. But but that would never happen nowadays. I wouldn't think it wouldn't be allowed to get that that far. So I think in that sense, yeah, things are. Things are a bit daft, and where I'm sure the hand of God goal, someone off the side of the pitch would like mutter into the referee's microphone. Now it was handball. Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, if it's if it disguised well enough, you might get away with that one. Theory on reason, that a more obvious one. Martin Skirtle got away with one. The, the, the point that you made there, Scott, is interesting, just about the violence because 1990 was probably a um, a watershed for all of that. The, even watching, and nothing compared to the Battle of Santiago, but watching back. The uh, night work. I remember watching the Germany West Germany Holland game a few years back, and aside from the spitting that went on, actual tackles were fairly ferocious, and the, the, the back pass was still around. It was pretty horrific stuff, but you will get moments of genius in amongst all of that. Has is the World Cup now? You talk about it being more homogenized. Is it maybe the poorer for not having that element of violence that it used to have, or is it? Or am I being a bit sadistic there? Maybe it's better that people aren't kicking the crap out of each other. I, don't know. I mean, it's yeah. I, I, I kind of think it's it, it, it used to add that little bit of special um, special flavour to it. I mean, I think one of the amazing memories from the nineteen ninety World Cup is Benjamin Massing. People remember that as much as they'll you know as as, as they'll remember England's uh, advance to the semis as much as they'll remember Republic of Ireland getting to the quarters. Um, you'll remember some guy. <laughs> You know, being systematically cut to bits as he ran down the the inside right channel. Hmm. I wonder though. Also, I mean, I sometimes get the impression watching the old World Cup matches that okay, it's clear that the players. I mean, you just look at the players physically; they're they're different. I mean, they they look kind of like ordinary guys. Um, you know, there there's nothing like the the sort of mobility or the intensity. Um, that everybody now takes for granted in the professional game. And I wonder if that promoted a more skillful or a more creative type of football, um, where, 
I don't know, maybe things have got a little bit mechanized now. Everything is just a little bit too collective and a little bit too but intense. You can't argue that the skill level is lower now. Even. The skill level is high, but maybe there's maybe there isn't as much imagination involved when there isn't as much scope for changes of pace as as you I mean you see in the the the, the great example maybe is Claudio Aldo in the nineteen seventy World Cup final. This is the most ridiculous dribble anyone's ever seen. A central defender, number one, he's never going to dribble in that position now as a, as a central defender. Number two, he barely breaks out of a walk as he dribbles yeah. past four men and I just don't think that type of moment is possible anymore in, in football Well also the beauty of Claudio Aldo in that, um, in that match was that he gave away the gave away the Italian goal like attempting this ludicrous back heel like <laughs> when he's on his own I mean if you thought uh, it's, it was kind of like Colotore's pass across the, the back four against West Brom but with an added back heel in there and, and the, yeah and the, you do get the sense that there's sort of there was, there was more off the cuff stuff happening all the time and it was kind of a clash of cultures as well still which is I mean that's it's it's quite often said we're never going to get a player like Josimar for example just like uh, exploding onto the scene at a World Cup because like all the major players and all the major teams now well they pretty much all play in the Champions League give or take a few exceptions Um, so we kind of know what we're going to get and it's yeah, it's, a, it's just that general sort of levelling out, even to the point where a team like, you know, the current reigning champion Spain were obviously by, you know, some distance the best team at the last World Cup. But there was just this sort of metronomic, uh, there was a sort of lack of panache about it, I thought, and it just sort of lost something. It was very clever and it was brilliantly executed. But there wasn't quite that spark, that explosion. There wasn't that Maradona thing. The 1970 World Cup of Brazil, I mean, you know, the famous Carlos Alberto goal, but that was also brilliant because they, like that final, they spent half the time flying shots miles into the stand. I mean, there was a lot of uselessness in that team as well, which made the brilliant bits even even better because you knew it wasn't planned. Yeah. Well, the book is called And Gaza Misses the Final. Scott Murray, thanks so much for talking. Mm, thanks very much. Who do you like there, Ken? The, the metronomic Spain or the spontaneous brilliance of Brazil, as Scott talks about? Mm, um, but what's more to your taste? Well, and Brazil in the seventy. You know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm saying this, and I wasn't I wasn't alive on when they were doing their doing their thing, but yeah, who would win in a football match right now if you got those 1970 Brazilian players against the Spanish team? Current Spain team. Well, the Spanish team, I'm sure, would absolutely wipe the floor with them. Well, I think so. Well, I mean, the players now run twice as far as they did. And, and in fact, the 1970 World Cup was one of the tournaments where they ran the least. And the players are walking around the, the field. They've all got their socks rolled <laughs> yeah, down. Yeah. They're just walking around uh, high altitude, intense heat. Everyone's sweating. You know, people are not running. People are occasionally making little bursts, but nobody is, is really running. I mean, the way that the teams play now... I'm sure that Brazil maybe Spain would be get freaked out. That Spain are so used to the way football is now mm. that they're that other te- they tire teams out, all that kind of stuff. But Brazil just would not look. At, they wouldn't run after the ball. Yeah. So Brazil would all just funnel back, hang on, hang around there, let Spain pass it around like lunatics for ages. Yeah. Then just have that one of those real sporadic bursts where Jairzinho scores a cracker into the bottom corner. Yeah, that's usually the way teams try to play against Spain. I suppose doesn't always work. All right, we're. Pretty much out of time at this stage. Do listen to the first show that we put out today. Andy Lee was in great form in that. He's uh, talked about a pretty big change in his career, moving from middleweight down to light middleweight and trying to um, get back to uh, get a route back to a world title shot that way. Uh, definitely worth listening to Andy, who popped into the studio. But that's it from us. Just a reminder, we'll be back on Tuesday as opposed to Monday at Bank Holiday this weekend. So we're going to put out a couple of shows for you on uh, Tuesday. So we look forward to that. Ken, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll chat to you then. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.